I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is the Jesse Kelly Show, and it is only the second hour. We still have two hours left. We got Boris Rifkin with history coming up about 30 minutes from now. If you missed the first hour, got a little upset in the beginning. I'm not going to do that again about the Republicans being weak. You can download the whole thing on iHeart, Google, Spotify, and iTunes. Also, Daniel Turner stepped in, got us a whole lot smarter about oil and energy and where everything is coming from. I have something a little sappy before I get to everything else. I'm actually going to get to some emails because I'm way behind tonight and whatnot. But this is going to sound like I have a heart. And I want to be clear that I do not. I am not a good person. A good person at all. I know this. I admit this. There's nothing I can do about that. I'm unfeeling. There's nothing inside. There's no soul in here. But I don't like when old men deliver my food. And this is what I mean by that. It's not obviously that I have a problem with the old man. Uh, I respect old men. And I guess this is naive, but I just have this picture of, of an old man maybe sitting around with his wife. Maybe she's gone, but maybe his kids are there. Grandkids, backyard. Maybe he's smoking a pipe, playing some chess. Going golfing. I, I I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that's naive. I hate when it was it happened to me yesterday. We ordered pizza. Old man came up, delivered it. And if it's just an old timer who does it to keep busy, I get that. I actually had a driver in Fort Worth a couple weeks ago. I went over to Fort Worth. He was an old timer. We were just jawing back and forth about things. And I asked him why he was doing it. And he's like, oh, no, I'm happy. I, I'm retired. He, he had built helicopters forever. He was clearly doing fine. He's like, I just do this so I have someone to talk to. That's not what I'm talking about. That, that's, that's fine. I get that. I don't like it that an old man has to deliver food. And I don't really don't have anything else to say beyond that. I don't have something I want to expand on. It's just, it's been eating at me. And it really feels wrong when an old man delivers food to me. It does, I don't like it. I, there's something about it. Chris, did that make sense at all? It did make sense? It, it feels it, good. I don't even know why I felt the need to unburden myself and get that off my chest. But I do not like it. I do not enjoy it. All right, back to where we are before I get to emails here. We cut off Russian, Russian oil. As you heard from Daniel Turner earlier, we get about 3% of our oil from Russia. So that's not good considering we were already all getting slaughtered at the pump. Our fearless commander-in-chief got up and spoke today. And it will make America a world leader, manufacturing and exporting clean energy technologies of the future to countries all around the world. This is the goal we should be racing toward. Okay, okay, he went on. Today, I'm announcing the United States is targeting the main artery of Russia's economy. 
We're banning all imports of Russian oil and gas and energy. The decision today is not without cost here at home. Putin's war is already hurting American families at the gas pump. Since Putin began his military buildup on Ukrainian borders, just since then, the price of the gas at the pump in America went up 75 cents. And with this action, it's going to go up further. It's simply not true that my administration or policies are holding back domestic energy production. If you believe any of that, make sure you go back and listen to Daniel Turner from Hour One, where he destroys all of that. That is a bald-faced lie. And actually, now that I think about that, Chris, what does that mean? A bald-faced lie? No, it doesn't mean you have a bald face. I actually have used that word, that term my whole life, and I don't know where it means. Chris, don't just make things up. I can make things up. Do you think you could look it up, please? Find out what... Anyway, back to what I'm saying. This Biden administration has made a policy of this. It is it is something to see. The arrogance out of these people, it is something to see. So cause a problem. Remember, prices were through the roof long before Putin ever got to Ukraine. Cause a problem. Deny there's a problem. That's always step two. And step three is, hey, man, that's not my fault. It should motivate us to accelerate the transition to clean energy. This is a perspective that our European allies share and the future where together we can achieve greater independence. Loosening environmental regulations or pulling back clean energy investment won't, let me explain, won't, will not lower energy prices for families. But transforming our economy to run on electric vehicles powered by clean energy with tax credits to help American families. Yeah, you get the idea. It's all a bunch of lies. Remember something. The communists leading up to World War One. Before there was ever a World War I, and after World War I broke out, the communist movement was spark- starting to spark in the world. Obviously, you know it ended up blowing up in Russia, but remember this. World War I had a level of carnage the world had never seen before. We honestly don't think enough about World War I because why? Well, it got superseded by World War II where everything got magnified above that. But before World War I... You didn't have millions dead from combat? Like, what? You did, you just, no nation had ever seen these numbers before. And while we were in the middle of watching carnage like the world had never seen before, and normal people, people like you, were watching in horror, the communists, they thought World War I was fantastic. They thought to themselves, oh, nice. Um, this is going to present us an opportunity to take power right now. The normal person cannot afford to live the way they have lived in this country. I should just talk to the wife during the break. We have a SUV. It's what uh, eight years old now. So it's a little older, but it's not ancient, right? We have an eight-year-old SUV. Got to have it because my kids are huge and I'm huge. She just filled up. It cost her $100 to fill up. Okay, how are people supposed to live like that? And this is not a person, she's not, not some person on the road all day long. It's to this practice, then to that practice, then to school. That I mean, living that life that mothers live in this country. How are normal people supposed to afford that? And yet the Biden administration, this is the most devastating thing. They're not looking at that and saying to themselves, oh, dang, I feel bad for that mom. Now nah, she's not going to make ends meet. They're looking and saying, oh, man, this is awesome. 
Oil and gas is going down in flames. This is a great opportunity to build more solar panels. I mean, let's let's figure out to, how to make sure they don't blame us. Hey, we'll just blame Putin. Let's tell him it was Putin's fault. That's what we deal with right now in this country. It's sick. I mean, they're out there saying it. Or, and this is my favorite, they're starting to do the let them eat cake thing. You remember Dome from the other day. Oh, we're going to drive electric vehicles. The system has decided that that's just part of the messaging. Here's regime apologist Stephen Colbert, used to be a comedian. Russia has been hit with a series of crippling sanctions, and it looks like there's more to come because the U.S. and its European allies are now discussing banning imports of Russian oil. Take that, Putin. We're not going to buy our gas from a war criminal. We're going to buy it from the good guys, Saudi Arabia. (laughs) But it's going to cost. Since the invasion, oil prices have skyrocketed. Today, the average gas price in America hit an all-time record high of over $4 per gallon. Okay, that stings, but a clean conscience is worth a buck or two. I'm willing to pay. It's important. It's important. I'm willing. Hold on, Chris. Before we let him finish up, uh, you have seven seconds to give me Stephen Colbert's net worth. Seven seconds. How fast is the internet in here? I'm going to let him finish. To pay $4 a gallon? Hell, I'll pay $15 a gallon because I drive a Tesla. <laughs> How much, Chris? Stephen Colbert. Did you hear what he just said? It's a small price to pay for a clean conscience. I don't want to hear about your dollar a gallon. Plus, he drives a Tesla. He has a clean conscience. What do you have, peasant? Stephen Colbert's worth $75 million. Makes 15 a year, Chris says. Yeah, that network TV money's big boy money. Do you notice any parallels, by the way? Do you notice any parallels between what you're hearing right now with gas prices and what you were told approximately two years ago when coronavirus hit and they all decided you aren't essential and you aren't essential and you should stay home? And you remember what they all told us? Hey, hey quit whining about your job. We're all in this together. Do you remember being all in this together? I remember a bunch of fat, rich celebrities going on Instagram, putting out a video saying we're all in this together. We're in this together. No, no, no. Jerk. You're in a mansion with your private chef. You're still having parties over pretty girls and champagne and steak and lobster. I'm sitting at home as the bank account drains unsure of how I'm going to pay the bills. We are not in this together, and we have a division in this society. I swear on my life, it is going to lead to a French Revolution if this stuff continues. Heh, <laughs> suck it up, peasant. Buy a Tesla. Oh, okay. God, these people. All right, I'm going to get to some emails. I forgot to get to emails. I'm going to get to emails next because there's a lot more we have to get to. Also, I have good news. Would you like some good news about where we are, where we stand, I have good news. I'm going to give you that next, and we're going to get to emails. Oh, wait. I actually have two things of good news. You know you don't have to be afraid anymore, right? When you're out and about. I, I know that feeling of being unarmed when you're in a place where there are dangerous people, and it's a bad feeling. You don't have to feel that way anymore. Go get a hero gun. And maybe you're saying to yourself right now, Jesse, I hate guns. That's fine. Look, that's fine. I would disagree with you. No judgment here, though. Hero gun is a non-lethal gun. It shoots pepper balls 100 miles per hour. So that daughter of yours you sent off to college who hates guns, get her a hero gun. When these pepper balls hit 
they they cover the person who got hit with them in this brutal chemical pepper cloud. Might save her life. Go to Hero2020.com and use the code JESSE. Get yourself some peace of mind. Get your daughter some peace of mind. State restrictions may apply. Hero2020.com, code JESSE. Is he smarter than everyone? Who knows? Does he think so? Yeah. The Jesse Kelly Show. It is the Jesse Kelly Show, and I have, I told you I have good news coming, and I do, but first, terrible news. Terrible news. Chris, guess what the suits just hit me with during the break? What do you care? This isn't going to affect you at all. So get this. This is a radio show, right? Obviously, I know I don't have an important job. I sit and talk into a microphone. Truck drivers have an important job. I don't have an important job. I realize that. But people genuinely enjoy the show, which I find to be ridiculous, but they do. And so all the suits are always trying to find a new way for people to consume the show. And I understand that. I'm not, a, I'm not one of these super genius business types. I get that. Do whatever you got to do. That's fine. It's fine. I get it. I get it. It's a business, not a charity. It's a business. I totally get it. Guess what they just hit me with, Chris? They want to put a freaking camera in the radio studio so people can watch me do the radio show. Stop laughing, Chris. It's not funny. I'm so upset about it, partially because, all right, I guess it's confession time. And before we get to the other good news, I guess it's confession time. I can't dress. Like, I don't. I don't have any sense of fashion. I don't know how to dress. And here's what's crazy is a lot of people don't realize that because whenever you see me in public, if I have to go to public events, I've found basically one go-to and that's what I go to. You're going to see me in my cowboy boots, obviously, and jeans and a button-up shirt and a sport coat, no tie. That's really my thing. That's you see, and I wear that every night on TV. My TV shows on the first every night, 9 p.m. Eastern time. That's why we're on TV. But as far as day-to-day goes, I can't dress myself. And I, I need to explain, it's not as if I don't want to be able to. I didn't used to. Full disclosure, I never developed these skills when I was younger because I know you're going to find this shocking, I didn't care. I kind of did it as a flippant, you know, you can't tell me what to do thing. That one year of college I went to after high school, before I joined the Marines, when I got a 0.0 GPA, yes, that's real. I used to go to class all the time in my pajamas. And that was before like kids would do that. Why? I feel like it. And people would say to me, oh, Jesse, what, what, about, uh, what about getting girls or something like that? And I'd say, I'm not going to dress for some woman. Fellas, by the way, that's bad advice. Dress nice. That's bad advice. Don't take this as a. But I'm telling you, that's the genesis of this. I never trained myself going up. I never cared about dressing. And so to this day, I can't dress myself. Like when you see me on TV on the first, I'm wearing a uniform that I keep here in the office. I have different suit jackets and shirts and stuff in the office. When it comes to radio, man, it's not good. It's T-shirts. It's I'm wearing some. Uh, where did I get this? I think I got this at Old Navy. Some Old Navy collared shirt right now. I think I got for like thirteen dollars at Old Navy. Plus, 
I don't want to be on camera 24 freaking hours a day. Why do I have to be on camera 24 hours a day? Who even wants to watch this? But you know what's wild about this? I know people do. This is like a thing people do. People watch people do radio shows. All right. You know, it's not one of those things I have a choice for either. It's just one of those things I get roped into. Yes, I understand they're going to pay me to do it. Who knows what it'll be? They're, they're, you know what? No amount will be worth it. You know what? You know what I'm going to ask them for, Chris? I want a gallon of gas a day. That's what I want. But apparently, this show is going to be video, videoized. Is that a word? Can I say that word? Videoized? And it's a word now on the Jesse Kelly show. This show is going to be videoized. Ah, oh, that sucks. I'm going to have to start. You know what? I'm not changing how I dress. If I'm on here in a hoodie sweatshirt, then that's what you're getting. Don't think you're going to tune in and get fancy Jesse. I'll tell you what we do have to do, Chris. I don't like these big stupid headphones on my head. Can't we get something in my ear? I feel like I'm wearing a headset of some kind. These things suck. Oh, yeah, I guess they did get me the, the other ear things. I just haven't done it yet. All right, never mind. Back to what we're talking about. One more important thing before we get to some good news. And remember, we have Boris Rifkin coming up here in what? Like five minutes. Five minutes from now, Boris Rifkin with our continuing series on communism and the Soviet Union and the history of communism. I know everyone geeks out on that. One more big thing. We've been requesting a machine gun sound to go with the soundboard. Remember, I never had a soundboard before. They controlled everything. And now they got me this new fancy studio and they put all these soundboard sounds in there like a pistol cock and a pistol shot and a rifle cock and a rifle shot and a cannon and a bomb and a missile. We obviously have the go-to Frito Bandito. I am the Frito Bandito. I like Fritos corn chips. I love them. I do. I want Fritos corn chips. We have vomit. We don't use that one often. We have the Jersey oh God, Girls. Hey, how you doing? Kamala's <laughs> laugh. Of course, the fart. You get the idea. We have, we have, we have a soundboard here. Chris has offered up a selection of machine guns because we're missing them, and it is time. Drum roll, please. I do my own sound effects. Can you? Can they hear that in the microphone, Chris? Drum roll, please. It's time to choose our machine gun. First, Gatlin gun. I respect the Gatlin gun. I respect it. That's a no. And I'll be honest with you, I know this sounds sentimental. It kind of bothers me that Gatlin guns were used to slaughter other Americans. I mean, north and south, mowing down soldiers. And I don't, I don't like that. Uh, MG42. We have a moral quandary with the MG42 because it's probably the best sounding of the machine guns. It is, however, what the Nazis used. Oh, wait, that's not the MG42. Oh, oh wait, I pressed the wrong button. Here it is. That's sweet. All right, we'll come back to that. The bar, in, in case you don't know what that means, the bar is the Browning Automatic Rifle. This saved a lot of lives and took a lot of lives during World War II. Those Marines and Army guys you saw taking on Japanese soldiers in the Pacific, lots of times, big old BAR in their hands. Oh, I do believe we have a winner. Hold on, we'll do the Uzi. Nah, not enough. That's, that's a Thompson submachine gun. So is that one. No, Chris, there's no question. There's no question. It's the bar. Let it eat, baby. Let it eat. 
I love it. All right. Boris Rifkin. History. Communism. Next. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. And I had a dreadful fight. I'm back in the USSR. It is the Jesse Kelly Show, and I just had a thought. I'm completely going to put Boris on the spot here. We'll see how it goes. By the way, joining me now is Boris Rifkin. Sole member of Montefly Holdings. He's the one who's been joining us every single Tuesday at this time, giving us kind of a chronological walk through the beginning of the Bolshevik Revolution and Lenin and communism and Stalin and whatnot. Something I think I'm going to drop on Boris right now is, Boris, I know you have all kinds of history and knowledge in this Russia-Ukraine situation. Once we geek out on communism here for a segment, you want to come back and tell us your thoughts on current events? Sure, would love to. Perfect. All right, now let's set that aside then for a moment. Last week we were talking about Stalin and the Great Purge and and kind of the last thing I want you to hit on when it comes to Stalin is the Great Terror. The people have heard the word. I don't think they understand exactly what it entailed. I don't think they understand what it meant for places like Ukraine and other places. What what was the Great Terror? Well, it was really a combination of different terrors that went in stages. It really wasn't one. It, it was a number of different things that that were put under one umbrella, essentially. So it began with uh, the first five-year uh, plan that he launched in 1928. And we talked touched on that in the last segment uh, last week uh, to get the grain from the peasants to get hard currency for rapid industrialization and militarization. And that led to his policy of expelling and murdering the kulaks and collectivized farming, which led to famines across the country. Uh, that should also, I think, be part, be seen as part of the Great Terror, although often what you're uh, told to connect, associate that with is what happened in the later part of the 1930s with the show trials and the political opponents within the Communist Party that Stalin had liquidated, his old rivals, people who he had at one point come to power with alongside and then there was a huge purge of the Soviet military, the Red Army at the time. Uh, most of its high command, uh, the majority of its marshals, those were the most senior ranking commanders in the army, were executed. Most of its generals, most of its mid-level officers. So essentially, you had an army that by 1939, on the eve of the Second World War, was for all intents and purposes decimated to such an extent that one of the later very famous marshals of World War II commented that had it not been for 1937 and 1938, the purges of the army during those two years, 
very likely there might not have even been a 1941, meaning a German invasion of the Soviet Union at all. That was the extent to which Stalin decimated the Red Army. So there were a number of these political, military, and wider social purges. Okay, I, I, I want to focus for a moment, if you don't mind, on the wider social, because while I, it, it's sick and it weakens the country and it's wrong, I understand someone like Stalin saying, hey, let's get rid of this general, he might challenge me, let's get rid of this political operative, he might challenge me. But when I hear stories like the NKVD being assigned regions and being given quotas for how many people they have to murder, that seems odd i mean even for communists it's just odd. it's almost like murder just for murder's sake was it what was it right i think it was a combination of uh a stalin's own uh, sociopathy and uh, and his own deep-seated fear and paranoia and hatred of uh, wider soviet society it also had to do with the fear that his regime engendered in society as a whole in the nkvd and all these officials who were eager to you know be the last ones to not be the last ones to stop clapping. And even on a personal note, my own family was caught up in this uh, bulldozer. Sadly, my own great-grandfather was uh, uh, arrested, tried, quote-unquote, and executed by an NKVD troika firing squad. So uh, our family, sadly, didn't escape from the savagery of that era. And then my grandfather, his uh, son, uh, was, you know, designated an enemy of the people. And notwithstanding that, he you know, fought in World War II, volunteered, and, and all the rest of it. So, and he couldn't comment on how his father died and uh, that whole uh, period and the circumstances. So it was really a pervasive environment of complete terror to the point that uh, there were, you know, two to three informants per person in the country. Nobody trusted anyone. And then, of course, decades later, you found out that your relatives, your closest friends, your work colleagues were all, you know, uh, spying on you and basically uh, giving testimony to the NKVD and to the authorities behind your back. And people, of course, were, uh, you know, that led to a major convulsions in Soviet society in the 80s, especially when this began to come out. Boris, uh, you brought it up, and I hate to bring up something that obviously is still painful, I can't imagine, but you brought up quote-unquote tried is what you said. Would you explain to people who don't know, and they don't have your depth of knowledge, what were these trials like? Because they did have trials. I mean, it was the relatively modern era. There are pictures and letters and things like that. So they did have trials. What would a trial have been like back then? Well, these wouldn't; these weren't those famous show trials of the late 1930s mm-hmm. that people are familiar with, the ones that, you know, were often done. In, in this case, it was still done often under torture, but, you know, that lasted days or weeks that were well publicized and reported on and, you know, examples of senior officials or uh, military leaders. Uh, often these lasted literally 15 to 20 minutes. I mean, it was almost like, you know, m- summary execution by military court-martial in the field. Uh, and very often, as I and you correctly pointed out, there were quotas that the local NKVD branches officials needed to meet, and they tried to exceed themselves, uh, outperform the quotas that they were given, and so they tended to want to execute more people than they otherwise needed to execute, and then from above they were urged to execute more people and to you know be more diligent in what they were doing, so to speak. And uh, so these typically lasted, you know, you were arrested, uh, uh, knock on the door, uh, your family was just notified that you, uh, you know, that you didn't have a right of correspondence with them, nobody knew your whereabouts, 
and nobody knew what happened to you. You were just basically presumed dead. And then decades later, in my great grandfather's case, when we my family was able to access the file, uh, it basically was a 24 hour procedure between arrest, the trial, the sentence that was then written in and the execution. So this happened, sadly, uh, especially when it came to more isolated parts of the Soviet Union outside of the major cities where fewer people were paying attention. Uh, we weren't talking about very long intervals when the, with these trials. Speaking with Boris Rifkin, who comes on every single Tuesday at this time, giving us real history of what communism actually looks like on the ground. You just heard it right there. All right, let's fast forward to the end of Lenin. You mentioned last week that the wool it sounded like the wolves were starting, or Stalin. It sounded like the wolves were starting to surround Stalin towards the end of his life, or at least that's what I think you indicated. If I'm wrong, please tell me, but please explain what was happening with the power in the Soviet Union towards the end of Stalin. Well, towards the end of Stalin, he had decided that it was time to wipe out all the witnesses, all the people that he had elevated within the party and surrounded him and had reached senior leadership positions within the party. Uh, as he recognized that his health was deteriorating, he didn't know how long he would have to live, and he didn't want to leave anyone behind who uh, would in any way either pose directly a threat to him or would then be able to expose what he was doing. And he had begun to mark out senior figures in the party for a final purge by name. And he'd begun doing that near the end of 1952. In October, there was a, a party meeting of the Central Committee, and he started to single individuals out. And he died a few months later in March of 1953. And at this point, in like the death of Stalin film uh, that uh, sort of lampooned this to some extent. But there is a pretty convincing body of evidence that those individuals who he marked out decided, you know, not knowing exactly what their fate would be, decided to act first to cut him off at the pass effectively and facilitate his demise. Uh, and I think at this point, it's few people really believe that he died of natural causes. Boris Rifkin, you are a wealth of knowledge, and because you are and know this region, I'm actually going to ask you, if you don't mind, to stay and give us some actual knowledge about current events over there. you mind that? Absolutely. Boris Rifkin is going to come right back and join us and give us some knowledge on Ukraine, Russia, what's going on right now. I want to read this email real quick, though. I love this. Hi, Jesse. You always say send me your love, your hate, your death threats on a completely separate topic. Mantis X is making me a hell of a good shot. I am in an industry that's been subsidized by the Federal Reserve over the last two years. I'm a mortgage banker. The low rates have kept me insanely busy, and I've not been to the range in almost two years. To completely honest, I was never much of a marksman, even when I shot regularly. However, I purchased a Mantis X on your recommendation about a month ago and have been practicing almost every morning since. He says just 10 minutes. I finally made it to the range last week and shot better than I have ever shot in my life. He says, you better watch your back, but he put a smiley face on there. Says I can say his name. His name is Bruce. Go to mantisx.com and get one right now. You attach it to whatever weapon you want. Practice in your home. Don't fire a shot. Don't spend a nickel on gas. Mantisx.com. It will get you better. Miss something? There's a pot. Get it on demand wherever podcasts are found. The Jesse Kelly Show. Long after the thrill.
It is the Jesse Kelly Show, and we are back with my friend Boris Rifkin, who generally comes on every Tuesday and gives us just a long history on communism and the Soviet Union and makes us smarter. But since he is well familiar with the area, and we in general are not, I need to open the floor up for Boris really quickly to his thoughts on Ukraine, Russia. Boris, there's so much information and bad information, and people are cheering for Ukraine, but they don't know what to think. What, what are your thoughts on it? You're the one with the history and the knowledge there. Uh, well, basically, Ukraine is fighting a patriotic war for all intents and purposes, uh, and that was not what Putin and the Russians had intended that they would be fighting. And at the core of it is... Putin's Putin, his vision of what Ukraine is, what Russia is, what Russia should be, what how the two of them should basically be united in one federal union state where Russia would be the senior country together with Belarus and maybe a couple of other former Soviet republics. And his complete misunderstanding of Ukraine and Ukrainian society and Ukrainian politics and deep personal resentments and contempt that has built up in Putin and those in his inner circle in the Security Council in Russia that effectively administers and governs the country for all intents and purposes and has for a number of years uh, about Ukraine and its status. So a lot of what you are hearing that's being commented on about Ukraine being in NATO or not in NATO or in the EU or um, who it's going to be aligned with and, uh, you know, these separatist republics and this and that, to a large extent, that really diminishes, in my view, Putin's own ideological fixation on Ukraine and desire to ensure that it takes instruction from Russia one way or the other, either by being controlled directly by Russia or by having his man in Kiev, the capital in Ukraine, governing the country, taking orders from Moscow, which uh, was what happened in 2014 when uh, you had that... Uh, famous Maidan Ukrainian popular uprising that uh, led to the then president Yanukovych, who was very pro-Russian, being forced out and fled to Russia and has been protected by Putin ever since. Putin actually just wheeled him out recently to give a statement urging the Ukrainians to surrender and accept, you know, do everything they could to end the fighting quickly. Uh, and uh, so and, and he still has visions of reinstalling him or somebody like him back uh into the presidential office in, uh, in, in Kiev. So that really is the kind of general nutshell of what's going on. And I think that on our end, in the U.S. in particular, we tend to not, as you said, not understanding the nuances and the weeds and knowing the history and getting into the kind of ideological uh, focus of this, of, of the motivations of the different parties, uh, we tend to make it easier for ourselves to try to reframe this as being about NATO or about something that's easier for us to understand and for us to then tackle with uh, to tackle as a policy matter. And uh, I think uh, that's very oversimplified. So the, basically, as a result, there is no easy way out of this. There's no clear off ramp. There's no magic bullet that you know Ukrainians can offer to get Putin off their backs because it's a much deeper problem. Okay, so if there's no if there's no off ramp. And Putin has to take over this country, or I'm assuming he dies, probably ousted from power. But I mean, it is Russia. Let's just assume he dies in the end of this. Uh, how, what's to stop this guy from flat out flattening Kiev, you know, flattening other major cities there, slaughtering millions? 
What's to stop him from doing it? I will be honest with you. My overwhelming feeling is I'm concerned that we're going to see mass death there. I mean, like a big bomb of some kind going off in a civilian population. What's to stop him from that? Well, let's also take a quick step back. So what did he initially want? How did he initially very quickly see this playing out? Originally, operationally, he thought that this would be over in two, maximum four days. And that's why our intelligence agencies, our estimates were coming out. You know, Kiev might be taken in 96 hours. We had a lot of those uh, in, in the days and you know, week or so before the invasion happened. And a lot of that was driven by this, that the Russians really believed, Putin personally believed, and there were maybe two other people from the sources that I follow in Russia uh, that made the final decision. And Putin actually decided to invade from, again, those sources near the end of January. So a lot of what we were seeing at the beginning of February was, uh, in my view, kind of smoke and mirrors. Uh, and uh, he thought that this would be over very quickly. A couple of cities, Kiev, would be captured in a couple of days uh, with airborne special forces units, and, uh, for the most part. Uh, the government would flee. Zelensky, was, he didn't really take him seriously. He was surrounded by, you know, entertainers, and like this wasn't somebody he really respected all that much. And he also thought that the speaking part of Ukraine in the center and eastern part of the country uh, would flock to the Russians, that they were waiting to be liberated from this uh, gang, as he keeps calling them, of neo-Nazis and nationalists and, and, and all the rest. That didn't happen. And instead, you have this huge unification of the entire Ukrainian population against the Russians, including especially in these Russian-speaking cities that Putin is now, as you said, uh, reducing to rubble and devastating. So to your question, I agree that he's now, Putin is a tactical thinker, not so much a strategic thinker, he kind of adjusts as circumstances change. So I think he's going to double down and escalate. He's already begun doing that. Uh, I think that unless he gets terms which are utterly humiliating uh, on the part of the Ukrainians, and unless we basically completely back off, uh, he's now so irate about the original plan falling apart, he's wanting, he's going to look to inflict as much damage as possible, maybe to set up for the next round, or maybe just out of a desire for some for vengeance and anger at the fact that he wasn't given the reception that he thought he would be given, that I agree that there's really nothing stopping him from trying to do that. And I would say one other thing, that there is a non-zero chance that he may even consider, contemplate using tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. And that comes from Russian commentators who I follow, who are not official Kremlin people or tied to the Kremlin, but people who are not propagandists, but people who are you know, sensible, level-headed analysts paid to do this for a living, to assess what Putin is thinking and not. And they're now saying there is a non-zero chance that Putin is contemplating going that far. Not saying he will, but that he's open to the possibility of potentially doing that, or essentially resorting to what he did in Aleppo, which is what you were essentially referring to, just leveling cities. Mm -hmm. I think there's a real chance that he'll do that. Good grief. Forrest Rifkin, dude, thank you. I should have given you a heads up ahead of time. Thanks for giving us all this knowledge in two segments tonight. I just really wanted your point of view on this. Much appreciated, my brother. Anytime. Thanks, Jesse. Dude is a wealth of knowledge. You know what else, Chris? You know what that makes it? When I talk to a guy like that who's a wealth of knowledge, you know what it reminds me of? Me. What, Chris? What? I'm a wealth of knowledge, too. You're not a menu whisperer like I am. You'll never understand what it's like to be an oracle. Okay, that's me. <laughs> All right. I promised good news in emails, and I actually haven't gotten to either of those. On my life. On my life. In the next segment, we are getting to good news in emails. All right? You savvy? Oh, wait. 
I have good news before we even get to the other good news. You know that you spend a third of your life in bed and my pillow has Giza Dream Sheets 60% off right now. 60. And isn't that number wild? One third of your life in bed. And I never used to place any kind of a priority on my bedding, my pillow, my mattress, my sheets. Ah, who cares? And then I realized, uh, why not? That's really important. And you don't have to break the bank. Remember, my pillow has a 60-day money-back guarantee on everything. So if you get these Giza Dream Sheets and they're not what I told you they are, just send them back. They're not worried about it. You won't send them back, though. Get two sets. Again, get two sets so you can have one on the bed while the other's in the wash. Go to MyPillow.com. Use the promo code JESSE, and that gets you 60% off. MyPillow.com. Promo code JESSE. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.